Welcome to today's episode of Fixing Healthcare. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Corr, also host the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, an author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. This season focuses on the complex issues of end of life. Our guest today is Dr. Atul Gawande. He's a surgeon and health policy expert. He serves as professor at the Harvard School of Public Health and professor of surgery at the Harvard Medical School. He has published multiple New York Times bestsellers, including The Checklist Manifesto and Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters at the End. He's currently serving as the Assistant Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID. Hello, Atul. It's a privilege to have you on as a guest of Fixing Healthcare. It's a privilege to be here with you again. As you know, this is Season 9, and it focuses on the challenges and complexities of -of end-of-life issues. You have vast experience both as a skilled surgeon and a loving son. I'd like to ask you first about your dad, a truly remarkable individual. Can you provide listeners with some background about his life? Well, um, my father uh, was a surgeon himself, a urologist. Uh, my, and, uh, my, my father and mother are from India. They met as residents in Brooklyn, New York in the 1960s, fell in love, upsetting their families <laughs> and and got married. And I ended up being born in, in New York with my sister a couple of years later. And uh, and then we grew up in rural Ohio. Complicated story about what, why we ended up in Ohio instead of back in India. Um, I had an anaphylactic reaction to the smallpox vaccine, uh, which meant that I couldn't return, to, couldn't go to India. And so um, they were local doctors. My mother, a pediatrician, my father, uh, a surgeon, uh, he trained as a general surgeon, but also did urology, and that became more and more of his practice in a community that didn't have enough care, uh, the poorest county in Ohio, Athens County, and, um, and you know, spent his entire career, the next half century, almost half century, being a local surgeon, but part of the community, uh, joined Rotary, uh, led uh, community work for both the local community and his village where my ancestors home in India and navigated uh, trying to do good uh, in the communities uh, where he came from and where he and where and where we lived and, you know, navigated life along the way. He was a vibrant man. I know you and he used to play tennis together, despite the fact that he was obviously much older than you. How does the ability to play tennis, to do surgery, what was the first signs and symptoms that he had that told you that there was something wrong with him medically? Yeah, he um, developed some pain in his neck, and it seemed like just a a chronic pain uh, kind of became acute every once in a while. Got an uh, initial checkout, you know, 
and it didn't seem to be anything for a long time. And you know, then it progressed to becoming uh, shooting pains down one arm and gradual development of, of pins and needles. And that was the alarming sign. He ended up getting an x-ray that showed a widened spinal canal in ways that raised concerns that led to an MRI, which revealed a huge tumor starting in his brainstem and going all the way down through the spinal cord, down the length of his neck. Um, it was growing inside his brain and spinal cord. And he recognized, he, he looked at the films, he called me up and said, can we take a look at this x-ray with, with me, Atul? And, you know, the modern era, we, he sent me some digital files. We opened up together while we we're talking on the phone. And you saw right away, this was not a resectable tumor. This was not a tumor that could be removed. We were looking at the bus that was going to hit him sometime. A lot of questions. Is there really nothing you can do about it? You know, we 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 weren't ready to imagine that to be the case. Maybe it's not a tumor after all. Maybe it's not. Um, and uh, and we were down that road. That was that was the moment where everything changed. And how did that road progress? Was it smooth and linear, or were there ups and downs? Very nonlinear. It was first unclear: is this moving fast or not? And seeking help, we end up getting two opinions. The first opinion uh, from a colleague at my own hospital was, uh, this should this needs to come out right now. Like you can't sit on this. This isn't this is incredibly dangerous. And my father, being a surgeon, was something of a control freak and wanted to know every detail of the operation. And going through that, even a little bit of that discussion quickly came upon that, what were they gonna try to do? Well, it was to resect part of it, try to take a sample for a biopsy and create room for the tumor to grow uh, and stabilize the spine with, with rods. And the risk of bleeding, the risk of paralysis that he feared, the risk that it would end his career in surgery right then and there made him extremely reluctant and uh, and also a little bit the manner of of the neurosurgeon who really hated having all these questions being asked and he got a second opinion instead of at my hospital somewhere closer to home for him and a surgeon who wonderfully would sit and answer all the questions and also hear his fears and and acknowledge the uncertainty that we have no idea how quickly this is going to grow that he did not think the risk was uh, excessive for being able to address, um, be able to potentially watch it. And so they decided to monitor and at the slightest sign of any worsening symptoms that he would return and contemplate an operation. But at that initial period that he would not have a biopsy and try to get a diagnosis, that he would not undergo a decompression procedure but would in fact just go back to work and see what happens. And I think it was about three years that it was that way. Pins and needles down the hand and pain in his neck in certain positions, but not appreciably different for quite a while. 
Do you think doctors fear doing too little or too much when they provide recommendations to patients? I think one of our biggest fears is not seeming to the patient like we are doing everything we can. And that biases us towards action, towards using, offering the tools in our toolkit. We fear being regarded as, as too conservative. Um, that's not right the, the right way to put it. You know, we all go into medicine because we, uh, not everybody, but uh, a lot of people, especially surgeons, go into medicine because we love fixing things. We want to make people feel better and we want to make and we want to save lives. And when you come across a situation where you have a problem you cannot fix, then we can be very uncertain what we're optimizing for and what we often end up optimizing for when we're not doing our best is optimizing for making sure that you have your best chance at long at, at survival that that a length of life addressing the, the disease on the on the image maybe shrinking it or making looking like doing something to take that action tends to be our bias for a lack of clarity about what is it that I'm actually optimizing for here when it's something I cannot fix and and you know I ended up this case we're walking through my dad's case was part of a series of stories that led me to trying to write to answer that very question. Uh, first an article in the New Yorker, then a book, uh, Being Mortal. And the cause was the general sense that I felt of competence midway through my career as a surgical oncologist, competence at offering people solutions that could fix their problems, but a general sense of competent incompetence when I was in the office uh, wanting to, having a discussion with people whose problem I could not necessarily fix. In fact, I often knew I, I could not fix. And the purpose in trying to write about it was that that gave me permission to ask lots of people. It became uh, more than 200 people I interviewed, uh, patients and families and lots of practitioners about their experience in this situation. And it was a group of palliative care clinicians, geriatric clinicians, a couple of critical care doctors who had a lot of experience in this situation and had developed a different understanding than that than I'd had about what the what the goal is in those situations. And that transformed things, including how I navigated with my father through his own tumor. Before we go, go there, I definitely want to cover that in great detail with you, Atul. Uh, the second surgeon he saw offered him doing nothing. How did that doctor maintain your dad's confidence and trust? The key thing, and in fact, this was the lesson that I learned from talking to great palliative care doctors and, and geriatricians and others was recognizing that people have goals in their lives besides just living longer. They have goals for what they want to accomplish in life, for the quality of their life. And he listened to my father's goals that he wanted to accomplish in taking on an illness, a disease that was very likely to be one that 
he could not cure, that the surgeon could not cure, that no one was going to be able to cure. And then listened enough to hear what are the goals besides survival? Uh, what mattered? And yes, having as much length of life was on the list for my father, um, as long as it was a length of life that where he could do things that mattered to him. And in the beginning, what mattered most to him was still being able to operate in the operating room. If there was, if there was not an option that was going to cure this, and you had uncertainty about uh, what was going to be the consequences of either operating or not operating, you know, you get a biopsy, you know, what kinds of tumors could it be? None of them had cures and most of them were of uh, modest, if any, effect. His message to Ed Benzel at Cleveland Clinic, still a friend, was, I'm telling you, those are the things that matter to me. I want to be able to be at home. I want to be able to be at work. Um, and I want my best chance of that for as long as I can have. Uh, and if surgery is my best way to get that, well, okay. But if watching is is that way, then that's okay. And that's how he built trust for my father. He identified what my father's goal was and aligned with him in trying to achieve that. Did your father ever define what sort of the minimum standard that he would consider to be a life worth living? So, I mean, that's one of the questions I learned to ask, right? So what what's your understanding of this illness? What are your fears for the future? What are your goals if uh, time is short? What are you willing to endure? What are you not willing to endure? What's the minimum quality of life you'd find acceptable? In the course of the conversation, he didn't exactly ask those questions. He just left enough room to ask his, my father about the experience, what his worries were, to recognize gradually that for my father, the at that moment, the minimum quality of life he considered acceptable was one where he could still be a surgeon. As the time went on and his abilities changed, his outlook on what he'd find acceptable in his life changed, as can happen with all of us as we endure illness and constraints in life. But in that moment, and for those couple of years, that was where my dad was coming from. People reach a line in the sand when all of a sudden they realize that this is not going to completely get better. That, as you said, maybe the dream they had of operating again, that's going to disappear. And they have to now figure out what to do next about it. I'm wondering if your dad, when that moment came, when he realized that his goal of being able to stay an operative surgeon couldn't happen and he had to start making some different choices. Yeah, the line and the conditions uh, kept shifting. So uh, the first thing that happened was his hand gradually got paralyzed and I would, um, and I discovered that he was, you know, finding ways to get a glove on in the operating room and tie knots with, you know, one hand, almost like a bat holding the, 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 the suture still and like tying with the other hand. And, uh, and it was a little bit like, you know, getting the keys away from uh, grandpa, you know, and you cannot operate anymore. And, you know, we, I, I flew down and we had to, we had to figure out how those things were going to happen. When he realized he couldn't be in the operating room anymore, he realized and 
that what drew him to medicine in the first place was not necessarily the procedure in the operating room, but it was the sitting down with people and helping solve their problems and working with the community. Um, and it led him to double down on his time in Rotary. So with this expanding tumor, he actually ran for and won becoming um, district governor for Rotary. That meant for all of Southeastern Ohio, visiting something like 60 or more Rotary clubs and marshalling their efforts towards some you know, particular projects, including the eradication of polio uh, around the world, something that the Rotary uh, supports in, around the world. And it, it was a way that he could have a, another version of joy under the limitations of his condition. You know, my mother would drive with him and they would visit. They ate at Wendy's in every town they went to, <laughs> if it wasn't at the Rotary Meal, and got to see Ohio and be with people in the community and with people who were trying to solve problems together. And that then kept him going for a year until the pain became too much and he could not. He required so much pain medication that, you know, the difficulties escalated. Along the way, you know, he underwent surgery uh, and took the risk, got a fusion of his spine. The biopsy confirmed it was a malignant astrocytoma, that it would be progressing. It didn't tell us how fast it would progress, but, you know, there was a critical moment when uh, he had to meet with an oncologist, and he had the hardest time getting this information. But Finally, we both did. We were all with her, and and she had eight different chemotherapies that uh, could be offered, and the pros and cons of each of them. And uh, and the question was, what if you don't do any? If you did one, uh, what's the benefit? What's the longest that people live? What's the shortest? What's the what can he expect if he did do it? If he didn't do it? Finally, we just I just said all right, without chemotherapy, what's the shortest we can expect? And she said, well, it could be as, could be three months. And what's the longest? So the longest I've seen someone in this situation is three years. And now if we did the chemotherapy, well, how would that change? Well, it wouldn't. The longest she's still seen is three years, but you'd have more people who are closer to that three years than to the three months. And that was a very sobering conversation, but incredibly helpful for my dad to understand that at most he might expect three years. In fact, from that conversation, it would be less than a year. And the chemotherapy would have some significant side effects that would re remove some things that really mattered to him. Um, and he decided not to go with the chemotherapy and went with hospice. And by this, you know, by this point, he was starting to progress to quadriplegia. He was in a wheelchair much of the time. When he was strong enough, he'd sometimes be able to be out of the wheelchair. Um, but that was when he ultimately opted for a hospice. And the goal in hospice was just be free from pain. But when you had someone focusing on making you feel better as the primary goal, you know, the expectation was he might be only a few weeks at that point. It ended up being five more months that he had because he got strong enough by not having falls, by not by not taking medication that was weakening him, by uh, being able to enjoy food and be out of pain, that he uh, got stronger again and began to walk again for another 
another three months or so on a regular basis. And so it was uh, part of the lesson here is that optimizing for the uh, the best possible day today as you are facing a serious impairing illness can often, not just can often, the evidence is people do not live shorter on average. On average, they live at least as long or longer, depending on the trial of the disease you're looking at. And so, you know, we, we could see that in his choices and in the experience he had along the way. Yeah, I think that research was done at a Massachusetts General Hospital right down the block from where you were working. And uh, it's quite impressive that when we stop treatment at this end of life stage, that patients often live longer than had they had that treatment. And I think you're absolutely right that it's from the fact they become stronger because they're not having the body torn down by the treatment that they receive. Let me say on that, um, there have been a number of those studies, but the one you're referring to, which I think is the classic, was a randomized trial in lung cancer. And the randomization was, it was was actually not stop treatment or, or, or do stop treatment, but instead it was, do you see your oncologist or are you randomized to also seeing a palliative care clinician at the same time, right from the beginning of diagnosis with a stage four lung cancer, which did not have a cure during the period of that trial. There are some interesting therapies now for certain, if you have the right uh, genetic profile, genomic profile. The people who got the early palliative care received more treatment actually, but it was treatment for pain, treatment for symptoms and, and, uh, and so on, but also got conversation about what their goals were besides just living longer. And the net result was having this other relationship led them to stop their chemotherapy treatment earlier than in the intervention group, uh, than in the control group. And they lived 25% longer. So they actually spent fewer days in the hospital, stopped chemotherapy um, a couple of months earlier, and had lower costs of care and better results for symptoms and survival. That is the fascinating thing. If it was a drug, it'd be a, it'd be a multi-billion dollar drug. <laughs> Did your dad ever consider medical assisted dying? No, that was never something that he wanted or sought. He fundamentally just wanted his pain control. And at a certain point towards the end, he required enough pain control that it made him basically non-responsive. My mother couldn't do that. She couldn't give him enough doses to make him non-responsive, um, actually like stop breathing for periods of time. And she ended up calling an ambulance and getting to the hospital. And my father had me take him home in the middle of the night and promised me we would give him enough medication. A common thing I see is that we have people seeking assisted dying where they have not received adequate palliation in the first place. And that is a reflection of a failure on our part when we can't do that. As you know, uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, has shown that when it comes to pain, it's the peak and the end that we remember the most. It seems to me that as we approach end of living and approach dying, that 
we don't make it very good. And obviously for the person who is uh, dying, that's not going to be an issue in the long term. But for the families, I think that it often remains that way. How would you improve that end of life experience for the breadth of patients that you take care of? You take care of patients with all sorts of clinical situations, uh, quite a number of cancers. I'm sure you've seen end of life frequently in your practice. How can we do it better than we do it today? Well, prior to my current role, I'm currently at the U.S. Agency for International Development, where I lead our global health work. But prior to that work, I spent a lot of time on developing systems around changing this uh, kind of result. To start with, it's to train clinicians and create systems to reinforce the basic practices. At the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, out of the center that I was running at that time, um, we ran a trial which trained half the clinicians at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in having these conversations about people's goals besides just living longer, documenting a plan for care that, that identified the goals and optimized treatment, offered a treatment plan for achieving those goals insofar as possible, and found that we were able to significantly uh, reduce the likelihood that they were on uh, aggressive treatment towards the end, had no worsening of survival, and had a marked improvement in their quality of life measured by their symptoms, including uh, anxiety, depression, and pain. And that approach is still one, however, where when we look, looked at a statewide, and then there's some surveys that looked at the nationwide level, it's less than 25% who have a conversation with their clinician, Who 25%, less than 25% of people who have a serious illness that is hospitalized in the recent years or given them a, uh, a poor prognosis um, that have had a conversation about their goals for their care aside from survival. The ones who do have a markedly better experience, both their family members and the patient themselves, when they come to the end, the family reports that they uh, they received excellent care more than 80% of the time. Uh, they report when you don't have that conversation, which is 75% of the time, that they felt that their parent or family member received, did not receive excellent care the majority of the time. And we know that, that uh, following that peak end rule, that is a traumatic experience for people seeing and experiencing the distress that you're seeing care that does not match a person's goals or wishes, leaves them in a state they would not want to be in. Um, and that is suffering, suffering for that person uh, and for the family member as well. As a clinician, when do you recommend that those conversations begin? So what I've learned is Along the way, you you know, we have enabled now, if you can get access to the body of medical solutions that are possible for people and the public health core interventions that sustain life, we've essentially doubled the human lifespan. Uh, we are, if you take 
people who have financial means, they, uh, in the United States, the top end have an 89-year life expectancy for women, 87-year life expectancy for men. That's a measure of what we can deliver. And back in the turn of the 19th, of the, uh, 19th century to the 20th century, survival in the United States was 45 years. So we are now enabling life for phenomenally longer. And the result is, and much of the benefit comes, because by the time you're about 50, you will have at least one chronic illness, and we're able to support you with that illness to a high quality of life and longer life for the, the vast majority of people. But that means living also within the system, within being on treatments that have side effects, um, having choices and trade-offs, even you know, ordinary hypertensive medication can give you uh, anything from issues with urination during the night, uh, impotence, other you know, side effect problems. And we're all navigating from the moment we have any uh, illness with any potentially serious impairment or chronic management issue, a process of navigating my goals besides just living longer. We're optimizing for what matters in a person's life and enabling that um, for as long, not just for as long as possible, but for, for as many days in between as possible. So that healthy life expectancy is what we're trying to support. Uh, and the goals as we progress half of our life um, on average, for many people even longer, trying to serve goals that are not as simple as uh, survival and independence. When you were talking about your mom, it made me think about my dad. When my, my mom became very ill, she had a chronic leukemia, had acute flare. She was clearly going to die. And I remember my dad saying to me, I'd give up all the money that I have, everything I possess for another few days with your mom. Why is it at end of life, after living for thousands and thousands of days, do we so cherish a couple more days of survival? Well, we live life forwards. And if you're the family, what you want is at least a little bit more time with the person that you know. And it's hard to imagine being able to let go because the person in front of you isn't having the life that they value anymore. When you're in the position of being the sick person, the person navigating the illness, you can have a different perspective if you're suffering. If you're suffering, if you are, uh, you've reached the point where you're not getting, you don't see a pathway to the support that can make the day today provide something worth living for, worth looking forward to, um, then that's when you want to let go. That's when people seek to let go. Well, part of our job in medicine is to provide the arsenal, the assets of medicine to enable um, that quality and help people identify what what's worth living for for them and try to enable it. And often we are not doing that so that people don't even have that chance to recognize um, that there is something that can be worth living for. I, I tell briefly the story of my daughter's piano teacher, Hunter, and uh, Hunter's was 13 when her piano teacher died 
of a, a sarcoma in the pelvis that, that was causing excruciating pain. She was incontinent. She she was ended up bedridden in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And, you know, the choices were an experimental therapy or, as she put it, you know, giving up and going on hospice. And she would reach the, the, the end of the road, um, went home on hospice. But the hospice nurse was amazing and asked her, you know, what really mattered to her. And she didn't have anything at first except just some dignity and control the pain. But when they got the pain medication right, they got a a bed that uh, in a bedside commode and showed her how she could support, you know, be dressed and and clean and all of those things. She lifted her sights and realized, well, she had a little bit of time and she called her students back in to start teaching them again. And in her last few weeks of life, um, they all got some final lessons and then she had a recital and it just was an extraordinary moment. It now was 12 years ago, but I still remember it to this day. Uh, and my uh, and Hunter went on to become a, a professional musician uh, in their own right. They're making their way as a uh, in rock and roll, trying to trying to climb the ladder. But you know that legacy that was what Peg wanted to give and gave to a whole bunch of kids at the end. And life was worth. She found a whole month and a half more of life worth living because someone made it possible. It's a beautiful story, and I'm certain that Hunter's going to remember it for the rest of her life and probably pass it on to her children into the future. So we, we live on beyond the time that we no longer are alive on this earth, I, I, I definitely believe. What is your biggest piece of advice for patients and their family members who are facing difficult end-of-life decisions? Here's my four-peer piece of advice. We all need a conversation, and it's a hard one to have, whether it's initiated by you when you're a patient, you when you're a family member. We need a conversation about what's your understanding of where you are with your illness when you have a serious illness? What are you fearing about the future? What are your hopes for the future? What are you willing to do or endure? What are you not willing to endure for the sake of time? And what's the minimum quality of life you can expect? I remember I initiated this conversation by telling with my father by telling him about um, a patient. Actually, it was a man who had answered those questions by saying, hmm, minimum quality of life. If I can watch football on television, and eat chocolate ice cream, that would be good enough for me. If I can still do those things, keep me going. If I can't, let me go. It was the best living will ever. It wasn't about, you know, do I want chest compressions? Do I not want chest compressions? Do I want to be shocked? Do I not want to be shocked? It's, the, the answers to those things is, if that would help me eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television. And so, you know, my question to my dad was, so he said, chocolate ice cream, football on television. And he said, uh, no way is that good enough for me. <laughs> and then the conversation started. So well, then what is good enough for you? And that changed over time. And it was an ongoing conversation, but it changed uh, It changed a lot. It made clear for him, made clear for us, made clear for me what our hopes and what our goals could be. And, you know, 
Ideally, you have a clinician who also has that conversation. But if you have it, you can make sure that your clinicians understand what matters to you and that those things are not being sacrificed. You're now in your third, fourth, or probably fifth career. You know, you uh, totally changed America's view of healthcare when it comes to patient safety. You radically changed and made operating rooms better for patients. You obviously were a skilled and technically excellent uh, surgeon for endocrine tumors, endocrine problems. You're now in a new role, USAID. How does it relate to the brilliant work you've done before relative to both patient safety and end of life? Um, thank you for putting it that way. Uh, it's a very flattering way to put the question. You know, my obsession um, I've found along the way has been in medicine, has been recognizing that we are able to enable people's lives in remarkable ways. I talked about, you know, the, the length of life we can offer, the quality of life, the navigation with the health system. And the challenge is that it is 70,000 different conditions that human beings can have, 70,000 different diagnoses. We've developed 19,000 FDA approved drugs, 4,000 medical and surgical procedures, over 1,000 public health interventions. And we're trying to deploy these capabilities town by town in the right way to everybody alive, across the country and across the world. And that is a huge human struggle. I've argued just the most ambitious thing human beings have ever attempted to do. A species has doubled its potential lifespan and now it's trying to give that to its entire species. And the question is, how? How does it work at a human level, face-to-face, you know, people working together? How does it work economically? How do we not bankrupt our societies? And how do we make it work at scale? USAID supports the development of nations, their economies, their health, their education, um, both for our own security reasons, because addressing diseases abroad uh, helps protect us at home uh, from uh, outbreaks and other uh, other disasters, um, but it also helps us establish our role in the world as diplomatic leaders. And over the course of more than 50 years, 60 years now, um, USAID has support, supported, I, I have staff in, in 63 countries, about 2,500 people in 63 countries, touching 100 countries around the world, mostly the low and lower middle income countries in the world. And these are places where you know, my, my key metric is how many deaths occur before the age of 50. The proportion of deaths in the United States before the age of 50 is 12%. The proportion of deaths in, in the average country we're working, have been working is around 60% or have been, it's actually now down to 40%. We started in 2000 with an average of being around 60%. And we've made huge strides along the way, supporting countries to navigate that pathway um, through uh, controlling and working to eliminate HIV, TB, malaria, working to address uh, pandemic prevention and response, uh, addressing maternal and child survival. And one of the things I've seen and that that is sort of a central motivation here is that there are a set of countries we've supported along the way who have been able to deliver longer life, better life, and even geriatric care um, at levels that now exceed the United States. Costa Rica, a place that started with a less than 
55 year survival over the course of decades of uh, advancement with some support from the US ultimately on their own feet in the last uh, 30 years, progressed by building on a primary care scaffolding, primary care system, including not just clinics, but outreach workers from those clinics who would uh, make home visits at least once every three months to make sure that people's needs were assessed. And if they weren't getting care, they were pulled into care, educated on the preventive issues, et cetera. Um, and the result was by the mid-90s, they had matched U.S. life expectancy. In the 2000s, they surpassed U.S. life expectancy. They have a, a, a strong public health and primary care system that now has an 81-year life expectancy. We're at about 77 years. Uh, we peaked at 79 in the year 2015, um, and they're on their way to 82 years, along with uh, Chile and others, at a fraction of the cost of, uh, of, of in their health system of what we have. And by the way, at the end of life, uh, they have more geriatricians per capita than we do by far. Uh, and they've been able to support that whole pathway. And, and Costa Rica is hardly only one. There are four countries now in Latin America that exceed U.S. life expectancy, including Chile, Panama, Ecuador as a match. As a match. Uh, Thailand exceeds our U.S. life expectancy on $300 per person per year for health. I actually am headed to Thailand in the next week where we've largely graduated from support. We're mainly supporting efforts like eliminating TB and and uh, addressing HIV uh, to, to get those to the end. I might as much as anything want to learn and see how their primary system, primary health system, is able to achieve better results having started out behind where we were. What is your plan, since I know you're a master strategist, to take these learnings from other countries and improve the U.S. healthcare system in the future? It's it's part of, thank you for that, <laughs> understanding the essence of it. You know, it took me a whole book of of reporting in order to get it, that understanding of what palliative care delivers that could have a better quality and a better outcome and get it down to a simple answer. It's, it is a plan around your a conversation and a plan around your goals for your life besides just surviving anytime you have a chronic or an impairing illness. Um, and doing this work for more than two years now, I think I've been able to boil down what is being offered in the countries that are outliers for their level of income, getting a better result, and then wanting to see how we bring that here. Um, and that is in every community, people belong to a primary health center that has outreach capability that touches, physically comes to their home at least once every three months with a health worker who can assess the needs and connect people into care. If you're in the top 1% of income, the United States is the best place in the world to get your care. The Costa Rica's, the Chile's, the Thailand's, you, you are better off in the United States if you're at the richest, you're the richest compared to uh, being there. But as you come down the income scale and you become middle income for their country or in the bottom half of the income, they are enabling results that are extraordinary by simply making sure people are not lost, that 
there is support for following through if you're a TB patient getting on your TB, getting finishing your TB meds. If you're if you're um, elderly that you've gotten your key COVID flu and RSV vaccines. If you have hepatitis that you have your hepatitis treatment uh, and follow it all the way through to to cure. All of those kinds of steps are what um, what the average person in our country does not have. And when you say it, it sounds unaffordable. How do you have someone go visit at home? But in fact, when we wanted to get the COVID vaccines to all of the elderly so they weren't dying, we ended up finding we had to hire community health workers, outreach workers, over 100,000 countrywide um, to go from those communities, knock door to door, assess people's needs and uh, and offer and make sure people were uh, provided an offer for a vaccine. And that's how more than 95% of people over the age of 65 got their got their vaccines. And now that those community health workers got, have gone away, it's also why only less than 30% have gotten those same uh, follow-up vaccinations. I think that that's the scaffolding that matters. Any final messages you'd like to give listeners particularly clinicians in the United States, about these vital end-of-life issues? Well, I see it as simply vital life course issues. And I think the key message is that we now have a set of interventions for public health and for health care and for how you live life that are key things that matter at every stage of the life course and set you up for having a better future and a better life now. And when people come in, people come in because they don't feel good. That um, They don't often come in to prevent future problems from feeling good. And recognizing that's human nature and that we need to have systems of outreach so that we are serving their goals for what they want to feel good about in their life how they can feel good and, and take advantage of life. We want to serve that all the way through life, including to the very end. And we want to address preventing disease and addressing disease simultaneously. And the infrastructure we have means that we have to have those touch points at every part of life. We have to ask some core questions about people's goals that really matter uh, and match this incredible arsenal that's available to us and them to fit those needs. That is more and more what I think the purpose of um, our profession and what we need to be able to do. We can't do it without a solid system around us. In some ways, navigating this pathway with people in countries around the world where those systems are being built now um, is easier. We built our systems in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and now are struggling with all that legacy of a largely hospital-based, acute care, treatment-based, specialty-focused uh, enterprise that has hollowed out that core relationship uh, at the center of their primary care, which makes it difficult to make sure that we are delivering on what is possible from health and public health. Atul, across your career, you have inspired me. You've educated me. I loved your writings. I love the chance I've heard to 
I've had to hear you speak. Hearing the story of your dad, I know where your core and your fiber comes from. I'm sure he's very proud of you. I'd like to thank you for being on the show today and for educating our listening audience. Thank you again. Thank you. I know we're on the same mission and this is uh, uh, a privilege to be here. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Core. Have a great day.